as much protein as an egg. Episode 15, The Last. Some more liquor. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg. I'm at SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. What's up, everybody? Greetings, greetings, greetings. From your friend, your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right, 2020. What a year. Who knew at the start of it that these things would happen? Kobe Bryant passing away. And really, it's all downhill big time from there. But who knew that I would be putting out a podcast and finishing the podcast of As Much Protein as an Egg, the long version The director's cut here in 2020. I first want to say a big, big, big thank you to Carlos Mendoza. I definitely could not have gotten through this project without your help. Carlos recording the chapters really bailed this whole thing out. He does great audio work. You can find him all over the internets. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, He does great audio work, and he really pitched in as an awesome fan and listener uh, and great reader to come in and help me solidify and complete this project. So thank you, Carlos, big time. And thanks to all of you who've been supporting on Patreon. I can't thank you enough. I try my best, and I still feel a whole Uh, I'll be talking at the end about what might be coming next in the world of Patreon. Um, After the episode, I would love to also do a QA and a episode if you guys have any questions or things to send in that you'd like me to talk about. I really want to serve you. I don't have new fiction to podcast after this, but I would be happy to come on and answer some questions if you'd like to email them in. Uh, talk about different things with regard to audio production, fiction writing, fiction practice, any and all. Drop an email, sethharwood at gmail.com or seth at sethharwood.com. Come over to sethharwood.com and check out the brand new website. If you have any interest in writing fiction or know someone who does, send them over to writewithseth.com. I've got some awesome exercises there, some assignments workshops, free videos on craft, a whole screen of them, and uh, also some private coaching that I offer if you are interested. Listen, we've come a long way with this story, uh, and I don't want to delay you any longer. Let's get right into what's going on in San Francisco as our action picks up. Bon 
bonus points or some kind of free something for anyone who can email me where that section break is from originally. Chapter 29 Ten minutes later, Kellogg and McGee had left La Quinta behind and were on the interstate headed west. It took Kellogg a minute to get used to the metal pedals and the stick shift driving of the Ferrari. He had been driving a crappy Ford Taurus automatic for a while, you understand. But now he was doing 90 comfortably in fourth gear and wondering what a fifth gear could do. Shit, said Kellogg. You never drive this thing? Trout set up a trust, McGee said. Mechanic comes once a week to take it out and keep it in tip-top condition. But I don't like to drive. Just not my thing. Prodigal son and sins of the father and all. I only drive golf carts. What? They came around a turn that forced Kellogg to slow down, and he dropped down to third gear, then accelerated into a straightaway. The RPMs revved high for a moment, but the car didn't mind. The car growled its pleasure with the whole thing. This late at night, very few others shared the road with them. Kellogg felt like a race car driver. There's one universal truth here, he said, keeping it in third and going over 100 for the first time. Speed is fun! He punched the gas and pushed them both back into their seats as the interstate climbed away from the desert. McGee had to smile at the way it felt. Kellogg kept his eyes on the road, but he could hear the old man giggle like a schoolboy, like one of his Waldorf students who had just farted. Don't worry about the cops or getting a ticket, McGee said. Kellogg had forgotten all about that part of the rules. This was another mind game that a car like this could play on you. He slowed down to 85. No! Go for all the speed you want. Time's ticking and Trout paid for this baby to have an 1199 Foundation gold membership. So go wild. He waved them onward. In fact, Kellogg did go wild. He traversed the stretch of Interstate 10 to Interstate 5 in record time, popping the GTS up to 125 in fourth gear and then exploring fifth gear heading up toward the mountains north of Los Angeles. He rocketed through the grapevine like a maniac, like nothing Magnum P.I. or Don Johnson in Miami Vice could have done any better. At one point, a cop on a motorcycle pulled out behind them, and Kellogg thought about just trying to leave him completely in the dust, but he didn't want to risk the cop's safety, so he slowed down to let the officer catch up. When the officer was close enough to see the Ferrari's 1199 gold-embossed license plate frame, he turned off his sirens, waved, and slowed down. He was letting Kellogg and McGee simply go on. 130 miles per hour in a 65 zone or not. So it goes. Listen, the CHP 1199 Foundation is a charitable organization supported by the donations of generous Californians interested in making a difference in the lives of the men and women who work tirelessly to maintain the safety of all Californians. It helps to take care of the families of California Highway Patrol members killed in the line of duty. And so on. The 1199 Foundation does not condone speeding or any concept that someone with extra money can pay to have police officers leave him or her alone while he or she drives 130 miles per hour on the interstate. Kellogg and McGee made it to downtown San Francisco by 8.30 a.m. on Friday morning. They had 90 minutes until the meeting started, time enough to valet park the car, check in, have showers, and a fine Eggs Benedict breakfast brought up to the room with plenty of coffee. They ate, drank, 
and had three copies of the falling people printed out on actual paper, dead tree form. Never mind what trees they could have saved using Kindles. So it goes. The truth of the matter is this. McGee had emailed out the full manuscripts of the novel from his computer at home when he ran back inside to get ready. The rest of the members of the committee had received this email and started looking over the novel at various times in the morning. By the time McGee and Kellogg had finished their breakfast, all of them had at least looked at it. This was 9.37 a.m., just 23 minutes before the meeting was to begin. But here's something else that happened in the night. Aldo Calcagno, the committee chairman and the biggest champion for Laszlo Zoltan Negi, received the novel, transferred it to his Kindle Paperwhite, and read the entire thing. He was done reading by 4 a.m. Calcagno never slept, incidentally, except on Sundays. This was part of his genius. While reading The Falling People, he had been transfixed. He was astounded by the quality of McGee's book. Even he, in its sinister capacity, had to admit that The Falling People was a masterpiece and a very important American book for the 21st century. It was entirely clear to him that The Falling People should earn Kurt Vonnegut the Grand Master Award if, even merely by association or by Billy Pilgrim's shared presence in both The Falling People and Slaughterhouse-Five. As soon as the other members of the committee read McGee's book, they would all vote for Kurt Vonnegut. Calcagno knew this to be true. He was right. So Calcagno had to act fast. He hatched a plan and rushed to have it in place by morning. As Kellogg and McGee ran around the Sir Francis Drake Hotel looking for the Golden Gate Room, Aldo Calcagno's plan was unfolding. All along, he had known a secret— Laszlo Zoltan Negi was in San Francisco playing handball this second weekend in March. His Hungarian team was holding a series of scrimmages against Team USA in international handball's highest honor, the pre-Olympic warm-ups. These were even bigger than the Olympics for handballers due to the fact that so many other exciting events happened during the Olympics. Nobody paid attention to handball with so much else going on. Here... On this single weekend in March, handball had the entire world stage of pre-Olympic trials and international team sports that aren't soccer-slash-football all to itself. The Deuce, ESPN's much-beloved second network, would be showing all five hours of Team USA versus Team Hungary handball competition in its entirety over two days. And so on. All along, Calcagno had known this would be the case. He kept it hidden in reserve for his back-pocket master plan. He had no actual affinity to preventative bullshit, as McGee called it. Instead, he was a complete and rabid fan of Team Handball, Hungary, and Laszlo Zoltan Nagy's literature. In point of fact, he thought he loved Nagy, but he had never revealed this to another living soul. All this, of course, broke many rules of the Grandmaster Committee and voting process, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that when Artemis Kellogg and Bainbridge McGee finally found their way to the Golden Gate Room of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel at 10.07 a.m., a mere seven minutes late, which was hardly late at all, considering their race across California through the night in Kilgore Trout's beautiful 1979 Ferrari 308 GTS. What they found was Aldo Calcagno gleefully watching Laszlo Zoltan Nagy charmed the committee silly with his beautiful Hungarian melodic pronunciations of English phrases and his flowing curly hair. Nagy had a very toothy and white shiny smile as well. Even McGee would later admit the man was handsome. Calcagno greeted the latecomers. 
Hello, he shouted. We're so glad you could make it. The other members of the committee turned glazed eyes to the new arrivals. They waved meekly. McGee could see immediately in their reverent eyes that they had each read significant portions of the falling people and fallen in love with it, but that they were now hypnotized by the intrusive presence of the Hungarian handballer. Calcagno led Nagy over to Kellogg and McGee. Well, shit, McGee said, Calcagno's sweaty hand. Looks like you've had an ace up your sleeve all along. Nagy responded in Hungarian a language that no one in the room understood whatsoever, but that sounded so beautiful as to compel everyone to listen in rapture. "'Did you read my book?' McGee asked the room. He tossed four heavy manuscript copies of The Falling People onto the conference table. Danishes scattered and shook. A bagel toppled over. The half-and-half half wobbled in its carton. Two of the committee members recognized the title and snapped out of their trances. "'Yes!' said one. Magnificent, said another. This was the classics professor from a big university in southern Arizona, where no one could think clearly on account of the persistent intense heat. This particular region made La Quinta look like Mankato, Minnesota. No one could even write a sentence there, it was so hot. Nagy kept talking, spinning his siren song, and pulling the committee members into his spell. The Arizonian resisted. Such was his love of classics, literature, and the great American novel as a genre. He believed in McGee. He raised his hand and voiced his vote for Vonnegut. To Kurt, he said. For Vonnegut! To, to Kurt, Kurt, McGee and Kellogg repeated, holding their hands high as well. They sat down at the table and banged their other hands, shaking the bagel tray terribly. They pushed copies of The Falling People at the other committee members, but to no avail. Even the best art was pushed aside by the beautiful music of Nagy's Hungarian pronunciations and his curly locks. Unfortunately, the presence of visual beauty was no match for hard-won literary beauty in fiction. When given the opportunity to see and hear Nagy immediately in front of them, the last two esteemed committee members voted to go on enjoying it. They raised their hands and spoke the name Nagy! All of this is to say that nobody at all voted for Beatrice Kiedsler. Her gothic ways would not win her the prestigious award on this fine day. Her chances died. So it goes. As long as the death of the novel has been discussed, which is a long, long time, even the most esteemed readers and fans of books have often given up on the extra work of reading to instead behold the easy visual beauty of singers and athletes with long hair. This is what was happening now with the last two members, their votes, and their riveted attention to Laszlo Zoltan Nagy. To find beauty such as McGee's depiction of wonderful American heroes and the fight of a catastrophe as historically significant as September 11, 2001, by reading was no match for watching a man sing and wave fine curly locks. All of this, by the way, has nothing to do with Nagy's own literature or his merits so far as the actual award voting was supposed to be concerned. Such was the deviousness of Calcagno's plan. But he had overlooked one very important detail. I held the ability to grant the power of extremely fast and utterly comprehensive reading to anyone in this book. It was a superpower I was willing to grant readily. Unfortunately, I had forgotten to give this power to the committee members. I had planned to do this, you see, but just didn't get around to it. I had only given it to writers, which the committee members weren't.
and so on. The committee members were all horribly normal in their reading speeds. The committee was deadlocked. Three votes for Vonnegut and three for Nagy. What could anyone do? In truth, there was a provision for just such a tie. It said an alternate should be called in to cast a deciding vote. I was that alternate. It was me. It was I. It was the author of this book. I was ten minutes away in the mission, waiting outside of the BART station at 24th Street to get the call. I was standing by to see if I was needed. Scott Sigler had originally been the alternate name to the committee, but he had given up his spot. He had called me the week before, asking me if I would do it. I said yes, of course. You better believe I was eager to vote for Kurt Vonnegut. I stared at my phone, waiting for it to ring. Artemis Kellogg sat deflated. He couldn't believe the falling people hadn't captured the day. Where was the justice in the world? This was truly a great American novel. A masterpiece. Perhaps Emily Plinko, who was just then passing through San Jose, still an hour or more south, had been correct when she wondered if the novel was dead. So it goes. All the more reason for him to write screenplays, he thought, but his heart was heavy for the novel. Vonnegut and the Falling People deserved better. He knew that. He wanted to see they got better treatment. Like the strong literary characters who have come before him, those plucky, crafty, and occasionally lucky and brilliant souls, Kellogg stood up and said, I have an idea! The committee was all ears. He spoke clearly and with conviction. He articulated a plan. What he proposed was this challenge. If he could beat the Hungarian in a game of handball, the committee would give this year's Grand Master Award to Kurt Vonnegut. How does that sound? he asked Calcagno. Calcagno said it sounded great. To Kellogg's way of thinking, the handball match would go like this. He would be able to trick Nagy and Calcagno into playing New York, American-style handball, which was very much like racquetball, but without the rackets. This would throw them, confuse Nagy, and he would give up at least eight or ten points, out of fifteen, by catching the ball, dribbling it, or doing other things that didn't translate from his own sport with a much bigger ball and very un-racquetball-like rules. From there, Kellogg figured he could at least win a few points on his athletic merit or luck and get to 15 before Nagy. He couldn't. Unfortunately, this plan had two problems. One, Nagy was a much better athlete than Kellogg. Come on, this man was a world-class Olympic athlete! Even in a sport like handball, he could jump and run with the best of them, and poor coffee-drinking, cafe-chair-sitting Artemis Kellogg didn't stand a chance, even if Nagy took a while to get to the rules. 2. Vonnegut and literature deserved a better fate than to have everything decided by a game that looked like racquetball, but wasn't, that didn't even use rackets. You had to hit the ball with your hand. Come on, we all deserve better than that, especially Kurt Vonnegut. Hold on a minute. Now Brainbridge McGee stood up. I have here the official manifesto and rulebook of the Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master Award and Committee. He waved a thick stack of papers that had been on the conference table all along. No one had paid any attention to it. Who would want to read that? The professor from Arizona, whose name was Leslie Stallward, incidentally, had been using the rulebook for a plate to rest his bagel. Now Stallward's bagel sat on the table itself. He was done eating it anyway.
It says here that in the event of a tie, an alternate voter will be appointed to the committee. McGee put his finger on page 79, which said nothing about alternate voters. Page 79 actually covered what should happen in the event that a meeting of the committee happened to get flooded out or was required to convene in a swimming pool. No one was looking at the rule book. All eyes were on McGee, even Laszlo Zoltan Nagy's. Nagy had suddenly realized that he had read a book by McGee once, even been greatly affected by it. He recognized McGee from the book's back flap. He had read a lot of books by Kurt Vonnegut, too, but didn't realize Vonnegut's work had any connection to what these crazy Americans were talking about. When pronounced in Hungarian, Vonnegut's name sounded like this. Johnson. Nagy entered a respectful silence, one he reserved for the presence of literary masters, which was a distinction he gave to Bainbridge McGee. Soon all the members of the committee were actively looking at McGee and listening to him recite from memory the section about appointing an alternate member in the case of a voting tie. McGee liked to read rule books while he was on the toilet. He had been studying the committee's rules in this manner for months. So who is this year's alternate member? McGee asked Calcano. I'll have to check. Calcano opened the leatherette case of his smartphone and started tapping its screen. He was looking through his emails to see what his last correspondence had been with Scott Sigler. He found the final email in the thread, the one that listed me as the alternate and gave my phone number, email, and mailing address. Calcano read my name aloud to the committee. Him, Stalwart said. This was the professor from Southern Arizona. He hated me and all my various writings. He had also read more of my work than almost anybody else. He was entitled to his opinion, I'd say, so long as he didn't go around giving me bad reviews on Amazon. Yes, him! Calcano said my name aloud again. McGee said, We should call him anyway. Maybe he's not drunk right now. In truth, there was no foundation for this comment. I mean, it's cool for a writer to have the reputation of being a heavy drinker, to an extent, but that wasn't the case for me, not at all. I was hardly a drinker of any note. I was, and am, a father. At that moment, I was no longer waiting outside the BART station on 24th Street. I had gotten bored of waiting and walked home. I was on the floor of my living room again, watching my daughter. She was playing with her favorite objects, which were books. This was what had cured me, made me incredibly happy and fully hopeful that the committee would get it all worked out and that literature, in this case Kurt Vonnegut's, would win out. My daughter was the newest person I knew, and in her young life I had seen her fall in love with two things more than any others. The first of these was books. She had just crawled over to a shelf and pulled a series of books down off the lowest one. These were her books. She had soft ones, floppy ones, ones where the pages made a crinkling noise when you turned them, ones with parts of animals hanging off the pages, one of thick cardboard she could suck on, ones made of waterproof plastic. They were fine and beautiful things. Books. The physical objects. These books, artifacts from another age, we were told, these were her favorite things. She had known them all her life. She would know them for all of her life. Of that, I was sure. It gave me great pause and also a warm feeling deep inside my chest. I was a reader, after all, you see. Her second favorite thing was the newspaper. Yes, we still had the paper version of this delivered to our house. Trees were dying. So it goes. This was more problematic for her to love due to the ink that came off on her hands and mouth, 
But there it is. We were trying to cure her of this love. Newspapers and books, both objects we were told all the time would go the way of the dodo bird. These were already a happy part of her life. My smartphone rang, and I answered it. Bainbridge McGee was on the other end, wanting to talk to me. I had to be very careful talking to him, mind you, lest he come to realize that I was his creator. He wouldn't like that turn of events at all. No. No, he wouldn't. You're the alternate, McGee said. Are you sober? Yes, I said. And I know. Can you come down here to Union Square and settle this? Let me do one better, I said. How's that? I snapped my fingers then and gave all the committee members the power of fast reading. They could all read the falling people now in just under two minutes. They would understand every word of it, too. This was only in the interest of time, mind you. It really wasn't a bad thing under normal circumstances for reading to take as long as it did, but I don't have to tell you that. McGee watched the other members of the committee, even Calcagno and Nagy, reach for copies of his novel. Nagy grabbed the last one up faster than Leslie Stalwart, due to his athletic abilities, but Stalwart was not to be foiled. He pulled an iPad out of his briefcase and began reading the following people on it. He used the Kindle app. For the next two minutes, McGee and Kellogg watched the others read The Falling People. I listened through my phone and could hear McGee and Kellogg watching. I could almost hear the others reading. It sounded like this. Chapter 30 And then, one by one, they finished. They put their copies of The Falling People flat on the conference table, pushing the bagels and Danish out of the way. They didn't need any more food for sustenance. They were sustained by the beauty and insight and emotion they had just taken in from McGee's new book. They were stunned. They were affected. They were taken aback. It was a masterpiece. Nagy cried. When I gave him the power of fast reading, I gave him the power to read in English, too. He really got lucky that day. But the Hungarian would get trounced later on by the Americans in handball. Killed, actually. So it goes. The room stayed quiet while the remaining members of the committee reconsidered their votes for the Grand Master Award. I whispered into my smartphone, telling McGee a message to say out loud. What I told him to say was this. To Vonnegut. He said it out loud. The other members of the committee responded in kind even Calcagno. To Kurt Vonnegut, they all said. And so the voting was unanimous. Literature won the day. McGee and Kellogg were happy and stood up, smiled and hugged each other in a manly, non-sexual kind of way. The committee members started speaking to one another cordially and sharing their thoughts and perspectives about the falling people. They had a lot to say about the events of September 11th and the firebombing of Dresden, too, it turned out and the new book helped them to start those conversations, articulate their feelings, and just generally get a lot off of their chests. They began to feel lighter and lighter, better and better. The book really was a big, good thing. Here's what all the committee members and readers were really saying to Bainbridge McGee in their own individual ways. Thanks for giving us a good book to read. Thanks for giving us a good book to read. Thanks for giving us... etc. Thank <laughs> you.
epilogue. Bainbridge McGee learned to drive the Ferrari 308 GTS. He never had as much fun doing anything in his life. Once he learned it, he took Sandy Sonnenfeld on a drive all the way from La Quinta to Alaska. They loved it. He decided to dedicate the falling people to you, dear reader. You were his ideal reader all along, and he loved you. He couldn't do anything without you to read about it. Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko will be married. Their wedding plans are just getting started. They're also hoping to have a baby girl someday. Artemis Kellogg is 77% of the way through his screenplay about the stars of the Occupy movement fighting terrorists. It really is good. His working title is Stars and Gripes. He quit his job at the Waldorf School to write full-time. His savings will last him until he sells his screenplay to Hollywood and makes $137,000. This sum, while not exorbitant, will actually take him quite a long time to spend. He's a pretty frugal sort, really. Don't worry about the sixth graders who lost Kellogg as a teacher. They have a new, wonderful substitute for the rest of the year. That substitute is me. It is I. It is the author of this book. Emily Plinko is still unemployed. She likes it that way. She has also gone off the dole. I told her she doesn't have to worry anymore about money. She was glad to hear that. Now all she has to do is search for her calling, or whatever she really wants to do with her life. That's not easy. Aldo Calcaño went back to Southern California and had to serve out his penance for trying to sabotage the award committee by working as an elementary school principal for the rest of his days. And so on. Sandy Sonnenfeld was bumped off by a serial killer while in Homer, Alaska with Bainbridge McGee. So it goes. You can read all about it and about more serial killings in my novel In Broad Daylight. That is, if you like that sort of thing. If you don't, I understand. McGee woke up the next morning after Sandy's murder and forgot all about her. He went out to hit the links. Even in Alaska, he played golf. My daughter gets more and more beautiful every day. She really does love books. I'm 40 years old, doing my best to learn to get better as a parent each and every day. My love and I spend as much time as we can with our little girl. These are all really good things. Really and truly. I promise. Remember when I said there were only two ways for a novel like The Falling People to end? Well, this is the other. Etc. Well, there we go. It's kind of sad, really. That last chapter wraps up so quick. As the writer, I can let you in on a little secret. You know what comes to my mind when I hear the end of this? I look back to the draft, and I look at that chapter, the one right before the epilogue. The original version of it was 333 words. The version that Carlos just read was 403 words. So at some point I added 70 extra pages of that chapter. In addition, I added 
Sorry, not 70 extra pages, 70 extra words. What are those words? What do you think each of those words are? Is, was, were, huh, huh, what? In the epilogue, I had one version that was 544 words, and then another one that was 472 words. Actually, the final version was the longer one, in both cases. So, there's exactly, roughly, 70 words extra in each of those chapters that I added later on. I'm not even sure what they are. But, oh boy, let's think about how good they could be. ay ay. Wow. That's a total of 142 extra words. What do you think they are? I bet one of them is dedicate. Another one is great. Another one is definitely breakfast. There's one for sure that is loved and an extra thank you, etc. Man, that's how it is. You finish a book, you wonder, you think about it. I've known all along that the overall draft of as much protein as an egg that I first wrote is a lot longer than the published draft. But at some point, I think I added some good stuff extra to the ending chapters. Who knows how many of them? Who has the time to look? In this case, I found an extra 142 words. So that's something, and probably not that much. To you, does it make a difference? You make a difference, I can say that, and I would love to hear from you. Did you get to the end of this book? David Dizwirik did. Did anyone else? I always hear from David Dizwirik. What about Paul Rogolinsky? Gomio? What about, well, you know, the rest of you? When I've listened to Carlos reading or read from As Much Protein as an Egg, I start to talk like this. My cadence gets a little bit different. Maybe I'm more humorous. Maybe not. It's kind of a Vonnegut thing, I think, or my version of what a Vonnegut thing would be if there was such a thing as a Vonnegut thing. (sighs) It's your boy. I did some podcasting this year. I put a book out of podcast fiction, as much protein as an egg. Carlos helped me a lot. I delivered for you on the Patreon channel. I put out the stuff for free. It's conceivable and highly likely, perhaps even wise, that I put out the Maltese Jordans for free in 2021. I could just do that, shifting the episodes from paid over to free on Patreon, maybe even posting them over on Shout Engine and on my website. The new website kind of looks like it's filled up with as much protein as an egg, because that's kind of all I post. I should probably post some newsletters, a few missives, an invitation or a reminder, an asking if you would like to buy any of my books for the holidays. They make great stocking stuffers. So does Ground Fiction, by the way the one with all the new short stories and novel excerpts by people that I've been working with. All of those things, they make great stocking stuffers, and I would be more than happy, in fact, I would be triple happy, to sign any of them and send them out to you, especially if you're in the U.S. 
if you're outside of the U.S., the postage is preposterous. But if you're in the U.S., I would love to sign and send a copy of any of my books to you. I've got them all here on a shelf, and I stare at them. Sometimes I go on the Internet and I see other writers with huge walls of framed covers of their books covering a whole wall of their house. I don't have that. Should I have that? Probably not. It seems kind of exorbitant or extravagant or masturbatory. I said it. In any case, I invite you to have a great holidays. I have gratitude for you. I have appreciation. It means a lot to me that you listened. It means a lot that I was able to do a podcast in this crazy pandemic year. And honestly, I'd love to know if you got this far. A bunch of you gave me that fart email that I asked for. That was great. I appreciate it. I know that uh, this time of year is crazy, so it might take you a little while to get to this. Um, But when you do hear it, if and when you hear my voice, do drop a line, even a text. I'll tell you, my phone number, it's 510-229-7955. Drop me a text. I'd love to hear from you. I hear from Squeaky Clean, Steve Dave, that's my boy. And uh, I hear from Carlos, and I'd be happy to hear from you. If you leave a voicemail, maybe I can figure out a way to play it on the show. Maybe I can figure out how to actually do a Q&A episode that would follow up on as much protein as an egg in the new year prior to putting out the Maltese Jordans for free as audio. Okay, with lots of love, this is your boy signing off for 2020. Much appreciation, much gratitude, and much love to you and yours. Thank the Lord that we got through this year. I hope you didn't lose anyone in your family. The death toll in the United States is well over 200,000 now, and I pray and hope that no one listening was affected. But in some ways, in many ways, we've all been affected this year. And so bless us all, and let us continue forward in our lives. I've been writing some poems lately. Here's one I wrote today. The Pull of Email During the night, emails come in while I sleep. Each morning, the possibility of wonderful news, awards, loving messages from old friends, puzzle pieces fitted into long-awaited place. But it's not. Daily, they are there. The friends, the useful, the junk. Distractions. Even finding a gem, I respond too quickly and move on to the next. More business. Busyness of the day. I don't need this to start each day. It's a trap a distraction, a pitfall, a draw away from my present and grounded self, the relaxation of sleep, the connection slips away, an an endless stream of clicking, keys, different apps, one to the next. I feel whole days like this, know the pull, 
the stream, the results. Later, I'll forcibly pull myself away to find a house, food, a body. Even now, writing this, I turn to see the world outside. Falling snow, tall pines, a white plastic fence in our yard. The snowflakes beginning to gather on the porch. Maybe we'll see some accumulation today. That's all, my lovelies. I appreciate you. I thank you. And I send you all my best and warmest wishes for your holidays. Your boy, out.